You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on June 4th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. By the way, there's an increasing library of uh, recordings of this from the past uh, year and a half or so uh, that are on the web, including a cool feature courtesy of our Wolfram Language video processing capabilities, which is word clouds for the things I've been talking about here. And uh, so it might actually be possible to find things about uh, topics you're interested in. And also we're turning these things into podcasts I think thematic podcasts at some point. So again, if you're interested, place to find things. All right, let's see. We have a bunch of questions that were left over from last time. Um, let's see. There's a question here from D0. What is the scientific method? Boy, that's a complicated thing, particularly in these years. Um, so, you know, the origin of the term scientific method comes from people like Francis Bacon back in the early 1600s, maybe. I think there was sort of a question of, if you're going to figure out how the world works, how are you supposed to do it? And the you know, prevailing wisdom back in antiquity in the time of the Babylonians, the ancient Greeks, all this kind of thing was, to figure out how the world works, just think about it. In other words, if you want to know why is there gravity pulling stuff to the uh, pulling stuff down? Well, you think about it, and there's this idea that things tend to get pulled towards the center of the earth, let's say, just because they do, so to speak. And people would imagine that things should somehow make sense, that if one thing happens, you can understand that that causes something else to happen just as a matter of kind of logical necessity. If this works this way, then this must work this way, then that must work that way, and so on. And so sort of the, the first concept was you can just, by pure thought, figure out how the world works. And, you know, plants grow up this way because, and then pure thought, this is how it works. Well, then I think people, there were often quite wacky theories for things. And people ended up developing like a, a common theory that I'm, I'm um, um, uh, there were theories about, you know, how was disease spread? There was theories about the fact, for example, for a long time, people believed that uh, things like maggots, you know, little, little bug critters would spontaneously arise in any uh, lump of mud, that even if there weren't any before, the mud would somehow spontaneously create life. Uh, a lot of things like that, that people believed. And then people came along and said, you know, why do you believe that? And, and for example, there were other things where, well, we believe it because it was written down in the Bible, some other sacred book somewhere, you know, that somebody said, this is how the world works. It's written down to be this way. And people said, well, why is that true? And uh, that, that was kind of the, the origin, I think, of people wanting to come up with sort of a, a, a systematic procedure for finding out what's actually true about the world and what's not. 
Another thing that came up uh, must have been in the ooh, 12 to 1400s, I think, was a thing called Occam's Razor principle, uh, which is kind of the following thing. If you're going to try to explain something, there might be an easy explanation, like, well, where did the maggots come from for in the, in the mud? Well, it's because there were already maggot eggs in the mud or something. Uh, that's a simple explanation. The more complicated explanation is, well, there's this spontaneous process where you know, first the mud turns into this and then it turns into that. And pretty soon you've recapitulated the history of evolution and you've got a maggot, right? And, and that's a much more complicated theory. And the idea of Occam's razor was that the theory that is more likely to be right is the one that has the fewer extra pieces that have to be added into it. It's an interesting question to what extent that principle really works when we're looking at different areas of science. In, in some areas, it works better than others. Um, in, uh, for example, in biology, it often doesn't work that well because actually things are complicated because of the sort of detailed history of biological evolution and so on. But anyway, back to sort of the, the origins of the scientific method. Then there kind of was this idea, well, just do an experiment, you know, make up a hypothesis, do an experiment, see if it's true. And that, in a sense, is a uh, seems like a cleaner kind of intellectual workflow of, uh, you know, if you want to know whether, in fact, um, I don't know, there are all kinds of terrible experiments, people, all kinds of crazy experiments people did. Like another experiment, for some reason, I'm reminded of was the if you raise a child, super bad idea, raise a child without any human interaction, without ever hearing a language what language will they start off speaking? That was a, a crazy experiment supposedly done at some point. And, and the claim was that they'd start off speaking, I don't remember which language, I don't remember, Greek maybe, I've forgotten. But, but um, uh, of course that experiment was super hard to do, but that's at least a, a systematic experiment. You know, You can imagine doing the experiment or you can imagine saying, let me set this thing up um, in such a way that I can have a hypothesis about what's gonna happen, I do the experiment, I see whether the result is, is correct or not. And then uh, th that, that workflow presupposes various things. For example, it presupposes the idea that you can actually do the experiment. There are plenty of experiments we can't do. For example, in economics, let's say, there are plenty of things which uh, just aren't experiments you can do, not for reasons of, oh, it would mess up the world if you did it, but just because you can't separate things out enough to be able to do that as an independent experiment. There are plenty of other cases where you can't do that experiment. Let's say it's a, I don't know, you could imagine the question, you know, is it really bad to have human clones? Well, you know, one could imagine an experiment to do that, but one shouldn't do it, so to speak, for completely, for other reasons. Um, it's uh, so you know there are experiments that are that are just not ethically reasonable to do. There are experiments you can't do because you can't separate the system well enough from the rest of the world to be able to do that as a separate experiment. Um, and there are things like you could say, well, let's um, uh, you know there are things where you just can't do it because it uh, you know you need to send a spacecraft to wherever to do this, and we just can't do that right now. Um, lots of other kinds of kinds of issues like that, but um, uh, the question 
of um, um, the uh, um, yeah. So so um, uh, so so then there's this the, the, this idea is you you set up an experiment, you make a hypothesis, you do the experiment, then you find out whether your hypothesis is true or not. And one of the things that, uh, that that's a good idea in principle. In practice, it, it really often doesn't work that easily. Another thing that people say is, well, if you have a hypothesis, there's this big kind of test, you know, is it a falsifiable hypothesis? Is there some experiment you could do where if the experiment came out the wrong way, you'd say my hypothesis is, is false. Well, that's a tricky business. Let's say, let's say that you are, it depends what kind of a thing you are setting up. Like for example, let's take a classic example is the theory of natural selection, uh, kind of basically Darwinism, Darwin's theory of, of uh, evolution by natural selection. What would be an experiment that we could do that would show that that theory isn't true? Well, it's tricky because there are, uh, for example, one thing you might try to do is say, well, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, the, like, for example, if it's the case that the things that happen during the lifetime of an organism are passed down to its children, that would be a little bit kind of tweaking the theory of natural selection, um, although not completely blowing it up. But the point is that the theory of natural selection is more a framework for thinking about things than it is a pure kind of uh, uh, theory where you say it might be this way, it might be that way. I mean, an another good example is what would it take if you say calculus? Is calculus a falsifiable theory? Well, no, it's just a mathematical method for doing things. You can then ask, is it useful? Does it actually describe how the world works? Well, it might describe how one part of the world works, doesn't describe how another part of the world works. That doesn't mean calculus is wrong, so to speak. It means calculus is useful for this thing, it's not useful for that thing, and so on. So then the other thing that can happen is people can say sort of the scientific method ends up being experiment will decide everything. You, you make a hypothesis, that's a sort of theory, then you do an experiment. If the experiment doesn't come out the way that your hypothesis said, then your theory must be wrong. The history of science does not support that kind of cut and dried workflow because often it's the case that there is a theory, maybe it's a very clean, simple theory, but to figure out what its consequences are for particular experiments is quite difficult and goes far beyond that original clean theory. Classic example of this is Newton's theory of gravity, the inverse square law, where Newton tried to use that to compute the motion of the moon and got it wrong. And it took another hundred years before people had managed to do sort of the detailed work to go from Newton's sort of clean theory of uh, the inverse square law to an actual computation with all the detailed mathematics and so on of the motion of the moon. So there's sort of a, there's the theory, which is the thing you are sort of targeting as the piece of basic science, then there's kind of the development that gets you to the actual thing about which you can do an experiment. Then there's the experiment itself. Things go wrong in experiments, particularly when it's an experiment that's never been done before, particularly when it's an experiment that says, does this happen or not? Sometimes the or not 
means, oh, we didn't see anything. Well, maybe you didn't see anything because you weren't looking in the quite the right way in your experiment. Maybe the way it worked was a little different than you expected. So you didn't see anything, even though if you looked at it correctly, you would see it. So that can be quite, quite tricky as well. Then the next can of worms is the question of, well, how big is the effect? You say, it should be the case that, I don't know, people who eat more carrots will live longer or something, or who uh, or will do this or that. And you say, well, how big is that effect? You know, you'd say there is an effect. People who do this will do that. Um, but it's not going to happen all the time that this happens or that happens. Or, or you know, in, in modern times, uh, you know, people who have this vaccine will be protected from this virus or will get the following side effect. These things can happen. The question is, how often do they happen? And so then you, you go into the, the huge and very messy area of things which aren't sort of slam dunk, this has to happen, this doesn't happen, but sort of happens sometimes, but don't always happen. So for example, in physics, there are some experiments uh, in classical physics, particularly, where it's like, it either happens or it doesn't. You can measure the thing, it's either doing this or it isn't doing this. And you can fairly cleanly see sort of what, whether the theory is supported or not. When it comes to things close to the life sciences and biology and so on, it tends to be the case that nothing or very little happens always. It's usually, well, it often happens that this or that occurs. Why is that? Well, it's because biological systems are very complicated. And it's like you might say, well, all rats that ate more carrots did better in the maze. Very unlikely to be true. It's, you know, it'll be particular rats that have particular genetics or particular rats that had been exposed to these in this environment before or particular rats that had eaten these things before. There are many details of the characteristics of the rat, so to speak, that can affect the outcome of that experiment. Or maybe just the rats, you know, the rat wasn't feeling very well that day for reasons that were just completely outside of the experiment that you were sort of controlling. So particularly in the biological sciences, there's an awful lot of, well, does it happen or not? Well, it happens a bit some of the time, but not all the time. Same is true in areas of physics that involve, uh, for example, quantum mechanics, where everything is, is couched in terms of probabilities of will this happen with certain probability or not. Also in other areas of physics, like statistical physics, same kinds of things happen. So, so then you're sort of thrown into, well, is this a real effect or not? And then you're thrown into the question of, well, yes, we see some rats that do much better in the maze and some rats that don't. Okay, is that a significant effect or not? So this leads you into the whole area of statistical analysis. And there's a lot that was developed, particularly in the 1930s, for testing sort of the significance of some statistical result. If you have 20 rats and five of them did really well, is that significant or not? And um, the, I have to say that in my own experiences in, in science and in looking at experiments, both experiments in, in sort of actual physical experiments and computer experiments and things, basically 
my attitude is always, if you can't get enough data that the effect you're looking for is visually obvious in the right kind of information visualization, it's not a real effect. And uh, that in modern times, as it's become in many areas, many places easier and easier to get large amounts of data using automated data taking and things like this, that's a pretty reasonable approach. Just get so much data that you plot the graph and there are two big cl clusters of points and it's really visually obvious that there's an effect. As soon as it's like, well, you can kind of see there's an effect by doing fancy statistics. My attitude is that's a very fragile situation and, and very, very sort of fraught with peril. But there's been a tradition from the 1930s on to use kind of methods from statistics to kind of tease out smaller effects. Often in medical testing, this is sort of the only thing you can do because there are so many uh, sort of features of different, well, you gave this drug to this group of people and that group of people, and you know, uh, a few people got really well on this using this drug and a few people had nasty side effects and most people didn't make much difference. When you've got those small effects, you kind of don't have a choice but to try and sort of dive into statistical analysis. So maybe I can say a little bit about how that statistical analysis works. So one of the questions is, if you see five out of 20 rats or something uh, have show some effect, is that significant? And um, there's a whole set of approaches to that question. Uh, often in terms of p-values, confidence intervals, a bunch of similarly uh, similar concepts with somewhat different names. But let me try and explain at least one of these. So the question is, let's say you're asking, um, do the rats run through the maze more quickly? Uh, that's not perhaps the best formulation. Um, let's say, uh, well, okay, let, let's say, let, let's, let's ask a, a question about, um, um, did, yeah, is, is the rate of side effects from a vaccine, is it notable or is it not? So let's say you know that of a thousand people who got this vaccine, five developed some problem. Okay, then you have to ask, well, how many would have developed that problem if you didn't give them the vaccine? And so then you have to ask, what's the rate of people developing that problem ordinarily? Well, let's say based on the ordinary rate, three would have developed that problem in the period of time that you're looking at for this vaccine. Okay, now obviously you can, when it's something like vaccine response, you can, there's a little bit more detail because you know the specific day the person got the vaccine. And so you can, you can tease out a little bit more information there, but assuming you didn't know that, and assuming it's just during this, two-week period, let's say, how many people ordinarily get such and such a thing going on? Well, so let's say that with the vaccine, it was five. Without the vaccine, it was three. Is that significant or not? So then you get into this whole question of what's the distribution? What, what's the, what, what is the probability that you end up with uh, three versus five? Because those numbers are small enough that it is really, a, uh, th th that it's not obvious what's going on. So let me give you an example. Let's say you toss a coin. 
you have chance, 50% chance it will come up heads, 50% chance it will come up tails. Let's say that you toss the coin five times and it's heads every time, okay? What do you conclude from that? Do you conclude that, oh, it just happened that way? Or do you conclude, oh, this is a, 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 a kind of a trick coin where it's always gonna come up heads? That's what you're having to address with this. And unfortunately, there is in the end no great way to kind of answer that question. In other words, there's no great way to go back from data and say, you know, is this surprising or not? Because to know if it's surprising, you have to have a model for what should have happened. But often the only way you have a model for what should have happened is to look at the data itself. And what tends to happen, particularly in things like medical research, is that people revert to certain sort of standardized models. The most common is Gaussian or normal distributions. It's assuming that most things the probability that you have a certain value is distributed according to a bell curve. So for example, it is true, at least it's claimed to be true, I have to admit I've never really checked this myself, that human heights are roughly normal distributed. That means there is a, an average height. You know, I have to say, even as I'm saying this to you guys, I just, this can't possibly be quite right, but it's certainly what's claimed. Um, you know, there's an average height, whatever it is, five foot eight or something in the US maybe. And there's a, a distribution of people. So there'll be somebody who's seven feet tall. There'll be somebody who's four feet tall. And, but the chance that you find a seven foot tall person is quite low. And the peak of the distribution is let's say around five foot eight or something. And, um, and then there's a, a certain uh, width of the distribution. That is the, the chance that you find somebody with a certain height. And so for example, in, in the particular distribution, the, um, the so-called one standard deviation uh, is 68% of, of, uh, of people would be within one standard deviation of the, of the average height. Uh, you can work out standard deviation just mathematically by, by looking at the uh, expected value of, the, of the, the, the difference from the mean, the square of the difference from the mean. Um, but uh, in any case, so the, uh, the thing that tends to get done is to assume everything is Gaussian distributed. And if you assume everything is Gaussian distributed, then yes, you can work out the probability that you find an eight foot tall person or something, um, because it's just given by this, this, uh, uh, this probability distribution that you've assumed. Unfortunately, it actually isn't true that everything is Gaussian distributed. For example, even if it's the case that human heights are Gaussian distributed, which I somewhat doubt actually, um, it must depend on what population you're in. There are certainly parts of the world where people are on average taller than others and, and so on. Um, but uh, the, um, in any case, human weights, for example, I know are not Gaussian distributed. They follow a thing called the log normal distribution. And if you look at different kinds of biological phenomena, different biological features, you'll find some are Gaussian distributed, but some are not. For example, if you look at levels of different kinds of chemicals in, in your blood, you'll find that some are pretty Gaussian distributed, but others have kind of skewed distributions. Some have very, very distorted distributions because they're like um, uh, hormones where the response of the body is exponential to the, the um, amount of hormone. And so that, that means that, that there's really a very different distribution. Then there's the question of how do we even know what the distribution is for some of these things? In other words, 
in order to find the distribution, we have to have sampled at random some population. But how exactly was that done? So a typical way that that can go horribly wrong is the following thing. So let's say you're doing medical tests and you say, well, we're gonna find out what this distribution is like for our particular population that come to our particular hospital by uh, just looking at what all the results of the tests at that particular hospital are. Well, the problem is that hospital might be one where, oh, you know, for whatever reason, they have the policy that everybody who comes in gets their blood pressure measured. It's a pretty, pretty typical thing, but let's say everybody who comes in gets their complete blood count uh, done. And so, but then another hospital might have the policy, oh, we're really trying to save money on this. We're only gonna do a complete blood count for people who have this kind of problem. And so that means that the distribution for that second hospital, because of some detail about, oh, they only chose to have these tests done in this particular case, that will end up being distorted relative to the one where people were just, oh, everybody who comes in gets this done. Of course, even, even the, the everybody who comes into the hospital gets this done doesn't give you the typical distribution for the population because people aren't just typically going into the hospital for fun, they're going in because there's something wrong. And, so this whole question about how these statistics work in sort of the real world where you're taking different kinds of samples and so on, it's really complicated. For medical tests in particular, uh, there tends to be a lot of complicated, essentially gaming that ends up happening because if you're testing a drug, you, spent, you just spent hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollars developing this drug, and you're trying to see, is this drug effective for somebody? Well, you definitely want to pick people to test it on where it's more likely that it's going to be effective. And that's a good thing to do because otherwise you throw the drug out because let's say, let's say it's spectacularly effective one out of a hundred times, that's still a useful drug. Of course, if it gives some nasty side effect, uh, you know, 20 out of a hundred times, then well, then that's a complicated question what you do about it. But, um, uh, so, you know, you don't want it. You want to pick a population where it's more likely the drug's going to work. Otherwise, you'll just throw away, you know, good stuff. But that can be quite, uh, there's quite a lot of gaming that can go on in terms of how, uh, you know, how that population is picked and so on. The sort of recruitment of people for clinical trials is always a complicated issue. Now, you know, you can ask about um, things like, oh, I don't know, how big is the effect of this whole question? Like, like, you know, does a vaccine produce more of this side effect than you would expect? Sometimes it'll be totally obvious. I mean, it's by such a large factor that, I mean, for example, with, with some of the things with, with COVID and some of these vaccines, there are, there are medical effects where they just have never seen in any other place. It's like there is no background rate because this collection of symptoms is just never seen. So you can kind of reasonably assume that it came from the new thing that was being done. But there are other things you can do. I mean, the, the, the trick is always to find kind of uh, things you can look at that are independent of assumptions that you make about a model. Like, for example, uh, someone pointed out to me that with, with these uh, vaccine side effects, one of the things you can do is take the ratio of the side effects from uh, people with, who got different vaccines. It's not perfect because there's slightly different populations that got different vaccines in different places, but it's a pretty good approximation. And there are then some, some big effects that you see there. And, and those are probably fairly robust and don't depend much 
on assumptions about, you know, what was the background rate of this? What was the background rate of that? What's the chance that this could happen just purely randomly without there being a real effect? But anyway, coming back to sort of what does this mean about the scientific method? People have this idea, oh, we'll do, oh, let me mention another thing about medical tests that's, that's relevant. The so-called, the notion of a double blind medical test. So one of the issues is you tell somebody this little pill is going to make you better. They take the pill, they get better. Sometimes it matters whether people think they're going to get better really affects whether they get better. We don't completely understand all the mechanisms by which that works, but it's clear the brain has more to say about things like our immune systems than we might have imagined. And you know, people who are sort of more upbeat about, about things will often do better. So in other words, just by the very idea that you're given this pill and you're told this is gonna to make you better, that will tip the scales on whether you get better independent of whether that pill is what's making you better. So that effect was observed quite a bit in medical tests. And so then this idea was invented of double blind testing, where basically you have two arms to the, to the sometimes more, but, but in the first approximation, two arms to your tests. You have people who are given pills that really have medicine in them and people who are giving pills that are, just don't have any medicine at all in them and um, that are just, you know, just pure sugar pills or something. So the, 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 that's the so-called placebo arm of the test. So there's the, the sort of active arm and there's the placebo arm. And um, the idea is what you do then is you compare the results from people who got the, the real medicine to people who just got the placebo. And you ask, is the result from the real medicine much better than the result from the placebo? And in order that it is that there are no sort of hidden cues that are given, you make the whole thing double blind. That is, the patients don't know whether they're getting the placebo or the real drug, and the doctors giving the, the, the tests don't know that. It's all sort of hidden away. And only after the results of you know, who got better, who didn't get better, only after those results are known, do you kind of open the envelope and say, well, this set of people were actually given the real drug and this set of people were given the placebo. So that's kind of, and people have felt that that's sort of a, a gold standard for how to do medical testing. Of course, like all these things, it, it's a good idea at some level, and then it falls apart. You know, in modern times, uh, with you know, it becomes easier and easier to tell, was I really given the real drug or was I given the placebo? There are all kinds of weird disasters, like the placebo ended up being something that was, uh, for whatever reason, you know, was supposed to be an inert substance that was just found everywhere, but actually some population of people never usually got that. And so the placebo actually had an effect rather than just the medicine. Um, another thing that happens is that the, uh, so, so those things can go wrong. The other thing that can happen is a really quite significant effect is completely lost because there's so much diversity among the different people taking these uh, these drugs that even though actually everybody with you know brown eyes and this and that and the other and who's left-handed or something would have done fantastically and it's only the people who are right-handed and blue-eyed who wouldn't have done well so to speak but you never know that because you mixed everything together um, and uh, you, you you know you did this test 
without knowing all of the details of everybody. And the fact is, you'll never know all of the details of everybody. Um, and, 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 and sort of teasing out what's an important effect and what's not is really difficult. People talk about personalized medicine and trying to sort of use one's genetic information or other things to, to sort of give one a special version of each drug that will be particular to you, you, you in particular, so to speak. But it's very hard to know how to apply these statistical testing methods and so on in a case where everybody's sort of getting something different. So those are some of the kind of practical issues of the sort of the scientific method. I mean, another thing that ends up being believed by people from time to time is, oh, there's this mechanism of, it's a little bit like the double blind medical experiments. There's this mechanism of peer review. You know, somebody writes a science paper and then it gets sent off and, uh, you know, an anonymous group of peers, like kind of a jury uh, say, oh, yeah, this is good or this is bad. Well, that system is really doesn't work very well at all because it's often incredibly hard to tell whether something is right or wrong. And usually people have all kinds of prejudices and very often people are gaming that system and saying, well, gosh, if somebody cites my paper well, then I should accept their paper because then I'll have another citation to my paper and that's good for me. And that's a more important effect than whether the paper that they're that, that whether they're going to do the really hard work to figure out is this right or not. And often you can't do, you can't figure out if it's right because it was based on doing this experiment on a rat and you don't have that rat and you can't redo the experiment. Now, there's, there's a, a lot to be said about kind of future reproducibility of things like biomedical experiments. Um, uh, what's, what's happening, we've been very involved in this, is making kind of automated labs where you really can just specify this is the series of steps you go through. It's not, oh, we wrote about it in this paper. It's a piece of code that basically says, do this, do this, do this, you know, run this, you know, heat this thing up to this amount, stir it this way, put it into this machine, do this, do that. And then it becomes something where it's much more possible to know, oh yeah, you do this experiment again and you either get the same result or you don't. Now there might be other factors that were important in whether you got that result or didn't. And that's, again, comes back to this whole, can you do an, sort of an independent scientific experiment? And that's a, that's a sort of key issue with the scientific method. Can you do an experiment where things are well controlled enough that you do the experiment a second time, you'll get the same answer? Because it's not obvious you can do that. If the experiment involves a rat, for example, you will never get two rats in the exact same state with the exact same characteristics a second time. And so different things will happen. And then you're thrown into this whole statistics of whether they're significantly different or not significantly different and so on. So it's, it's quite complicated. And I think, I think one thing that tends to happen, particularly in biomedical experiments, is people say, we believe in double-blind clinical trials. We believe in uh, these kinds of you know, scientific peer review. We believe in this, that, and the other. And then they switch off the, and let's just think about what's going on here. I mean, you know, we've gone from a time in antiquity when people said everything that one can know about the natural world, one can know by just figuring it out by pure thought, to sometimes a point of view, we'll never know anything. We'll never figure anything out. We just do this experiment and we see where the, where the chips fall, so to speak. We see what happens in the double-blind clinical trial. Well, neither end of that story is probably the right one. And 
it can often be the case, although people are, are loath to do it in, in biology often, that having some kind of theory is really quite useful. If you see something it in, in some biological experiment, it's like, why does, you know, when you give people vaccines, why do you get this cluster of side effects? Why are they that similar to things that you get from the actual disease, this, that, and the other? Well, there's actually theories to be had about this. The theories might be right, they might be wrong, but just saying, let's just do the experiments. The, the reason that's hard is, let's say, take, uh, you know, let's say there's a, the, you know, vaccine produces a little piece of spike protein, real, real situation. The spike protein goes to all different places all over the body, gets carried there because gets into the bloodstream, goes to all kinds of places, you know, attaches itself to heart muscle, attaches itself to, you know, this or that thing, and then has an effect. Okay. If you say, well, let's try and, uh, let's say it can go all over the body and attach itself to different organs, does different kinds of things. That's a super difficult experiment to pull together because you're seeing, oh, it gave people a headache. Oh, it gave people some kind of heart infection. Oh, it gave people some other weird thing. It's, uh, you know, some lung blood clot, who, who knows what, you know, lots of different kinds of things. It's being spread all over the place. So it, it is very, it's very hard to pull that together as a define the experiment. What are you going to do? It's something where you kind of have to have a little bit of a theory about what's going on. Otherwise, the data is so fragmented that you'll never be able to pull it together and see what, what the core effect is. I mean, it, it's sort of uh, and so if you say, let's just look through a peephole and look at this particular question, you'll never see the big picture. So you need some level of theory to see the big picture. Now, you might develop one theory that might be complete nonsense, but it's still important to have a theory to guide what, what kinds of things you do. And let's say you have a theory that might tell you, oh, there's 50 different experiments that you have to do that all might have some level of effect. And together, they're really significant even though on, on their own, each individual one wouldn't show you very much. I mean, it sort of reminds me of, of uh, in a quite different domain, um, when you're like building a website, people say, oh, you should test your website by doing A-B testing. What is A-B testing? A-B testing is you have two versions of the website, one where the button is green, one where the button is purple, and you say, uh, do people click on the button more when it's green or when it's purple? That's A is the button is green, B is the button is purple, which one is the winner? And you can use statistics to try and answer that question once you have a stream of thousands of people coming through your website. Well, that's a fine idea, but if you're starting from scratch from a blank website and you say, how am I gonna design this website? That is not realistic to answer by doing A-B testing because you have to have a, an overall hypothesis. My website is roughly gonna look like this and I'm gonna have a button. Once you say, I'm going to have a button, well then, and I'm going to have it, and it's going to be one of three colors, well, then you can start doing A-B testing to find out which color is best. But when it's sort of, you're still asking big picks of questions, you can't really go in and, uh, uh, and look at sort of those, those micro details and expect to actually come out with a, a meaningful answer. So yeah, that was a, a long description of sort of the, the scientific method. And, and I would say that a thing... It always sounds good, you know, in modern times, probably for the last 400 years or something, saying it's based on science, makes it sound really definitive and good. But the thing to understand about science is that it's complicated business. There are both things where you can expect science to make a prediction, and it can, 
There are cases where science from within the science itself can tell you, I'm sorry, you will not be able to make a definitive prediction about this thing. There's just uh, too much computational irreducibility, too much uncertainty. It's just, there is not going to be a definitive thing you can say. Like for example, at the beginning of this pandemic, it was pretty obvious that a lot of epidemiological questions, you needed a lot more data about how people interacted with each other and so on to be able to answer questions about how it, it mattered. A lot of details mattered that one didn't know that affected how much viruses would spread in this place and that place and so on. I, I think it's also in the case of this pandemic has been a, a great example of uh, some pieces of science and development of vaccines and so on, very spectacular. Some other things it's like, well, gosh, we don't really know. And it's been, I think it's very clear that there are issues about immunology, issues about virology and, and the way that uh, uh, epidemics spread and so on that we really profoundly don't understand and where there are probably some very basic pieces of science that eventually people will say, oh my gosh, if they'd only known that back in 2020, they would have done this and this and this. What a shame they didn't know that. And people have the idea, you know, it's science that's doing it and we know everything. Well, we don't know everything about science and there's you know, when things don't make sense, they probably don't make sense. Even if people are telling you the science says this, that, or the other, um, because usually often that, you know, when it really doesn't make sense, um, the, uh, um, it, uh, um, it's, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always suspicious of things that don't make sense. Cause I've, my experience has been, if it doesn't seem to make sense, it really doesn't make sense. Um, and I think, the thing that um, one has to realize is, for example, when one does these experiments and one says, you know, a study shows blah, 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 blah. Well, sometimes that's really right. Sometimes it's very obvious, you know, you plot the graph. It's very obvious that there's a, you know, a hump here, a hump there. Um, you know, it's, it's um, um, uh, but often it's a more complicated story and uh, it's it's sometimes um, uh, it's it can be um, it can be very challenging to figure out what's going on, and I think uh, you know having some kind of theory and understanding why things are happening the way they're happening is a, a very useful guide to that. Uh, plus, also you have to look at some of these studies. It's always a good exercise. Um, the uh, um, it's always a bit good exercise. You see when these studies. Studies say that left-handed people are better at um, cricket than right-handed people, let's say, whatever, who knows? You have to say, really? You know, what, what went into that study? Is it somehow obvious? Or is that really telling one some new information? Or is it, um, uh, oh, you know, I could, um, I happen to be left-handed, so there's a pet peeve of mine that, that um, if you have your mouse on the left-hand side, the, the command C, command V characters uh, that are uh, often used for, for you know, copy paste and so on are also on the left side. So you can't simultaneously use one hand for that, one hand for your mouse. So somebody might do a study that says, you know, left-handed people are slower at doing word processing than right-handed people. And it's like, and, and, and therefore, they say somebody might uh, might take the implication. So there's something to do with brain processing 
that is making left-handed people slower to do linguistic, you know, visual linguistic tasks or something? Well, actually, no. You know, it's just because the uh, the keys are on different sides of the keyboard. The thing you thought you were studying in that study isn't the thing you actually got out of that study. Um, there was a, a point here made by Pranav asking a double-blind randomized controlled trial. Yeah, I should have I should have mentioned one of the issues when you do a a, a double-blind trial is the question of who gets the. Uh, you have to randomize who's going to get the drug versus who's going to get the placebo. It's got to be just sort of randomly chosen, and nobody knows that until you open the envelope sort of at the end of the trial. Okay. Well, that was a very long description of uh, uh, of of questions about about the scientific method. All right, let's um. Let's take a look at um, some of the questions that have come in here. There's a question from Motu. What caused the split between the evolutionary paths of plant life and animal life? I don't know the answer to that. I will make the comment that there are, it used to be thought that there were just these um, two big kingdoms of living organisms, animals and plants, you know, plants have things like chloroplasts and they have cellulose cell walls, kind of rigid cell walls. Animals have, uh, have sort of flexible floppy cell walls and so on. And, and there are other, plenty of other differences. Uh, then it became clear that there were actually other kingdoms of life, uh, first the archaea. Um, and then I think just recently there have been some claims that there are other sort of fundamentally different forms of life that work in different ways. And for example, these different uh, kingdoms can have different ways in which the genetic code is used to make proteins and things. Um, and that's, that's sort of a distinguishing feature. What caused some of these kingdoms to win out over others? I don't think we know at all. I mean, the question of, you know, could the Archaea have been the dominant kingdom of life that led to uh, sort of the, the full sort of evolutionary uh, development um, I, I'm sure the answer is yes. I think one of the things that one learns from, from looking at biology and evolution and so on is uh, once you have certain raw material, there are always ways to assemble that raw material to achieve some particular thing. So for example, uh, once, in a sense, it's like computers. Once you have a universal computer, you can program it to do anything. Once you have a living organism that can make sort of arbitrary proteins and things like this, specified by its genetic uh, program effectively, then in, in a sense, it's possible to make that organism do almost anything. Now, you may not be able to get there from here. There may not be a historical path that allows you to grow wheels, let's say, that has a, a sort of way to get from walking to having wheels. There may not be a way to go sort of organism to organism. You're getting a little bit of a wheel and then more of a wheel and more of a wheel and eventually you're purely dealing with wheels. Um, so that, that can be an issue, and there are, but it's, it's remarkable the extent to which, given the sort of building blocks of life, you can achieve all sorts of different things. So for example, let's take plants versus animals. There are fundamentally different forms of growth for plants and animals. In plants, because the cells tend to be rigid, they have cellulose cell walls. Once you've put down a cell, you're stuck with it. You don't get to sort of squash it and, and deform it and so on. Whereas in an animal, the cells are flexible. So even if you put down that cell early in the development of the animal, 
eventually, as more cells get put down, it can be squashed and deformed and so on. So plants, for example, very often use the idea of branching. They make more pieces of themselves by, you know, they have a stem and then they branch and then the stems branch and so on. And that's something you can always do. You can make up lots of different shapes by different forms of branching, even though you never have to go back. You never have to deform what was there before. Whereas animals have different ways of growing where often they can build up sort of forces that cause things to deform and fold over and things like that, which plants can't do. But, you know, does it fundamentally lead to a different, uh, I don't know, quality of life or something? Well, I think that's hard to tell. And I don't think it's obvious that, that just because you have cellulose cell walls means you fundamentally can't do this or that. I mean, it's not the case, you know, you have plenty of insect eating plants that can, you know, move and so on, even though generally plants are pretty stationary. But um, the question of, of, uh, uh, of what led, maybe, maybe there's more that's known about what led to sort of a divergence of different uh, uh, general approaches to life um, early on. Uh, I think the other thing that tends to happen is, uh, is very much like in technology, once you've got a thing like cellulose cell walls, then you build a lot of stuff based on that. You, once you have this rigid structure, well, then you can build giant tree trunks and build up these tall things and use the fact that you, know, you can be the tallest tree in the forest and get more light and this, that, and the other. Um, and uh, uh, you know, once you have certain um, apparatus, certain tools, you then get to build lots of things on the basis of those tools. And then it becomes much more difficult for some other tool set effectively to compete and say, well, actually, we're going to make something that is uh, where, I don't know what, um, you know, invent some other form of life that's very different from, uh, from the way plants or animals work. Um, it tends to be the case once there's enough level of sort of evolutionary development that it becomes difficult to compete with that, even if you had a better mousetrap, so to speak, even if you had a better scheme. I mean, there, there are many examples of... Uh, cases with us humans, for example, where people might say from the outside, that's a really bad piece of biological design. Like a famous one is in our eyes, the, the retina of our eyes, that where there are photoreceptor cells, there are a bunch of cross connections in front of where the light receptors are. So there are a bunch of things which, which help us detect edges and things like that in visual scenes, where you would say the right design is to have all that circuitry behind where the light is coming in and hitting photoreceptors. And in some organisms that uh, I think crabs do it the other way, king crabs and things do it the other way around, that evolved eyes separately, they do have it that other way around, but we are stuck with it the way around that we have it. And in a sense, some other organism could come along and say, I flipped it around, but we've got so much else in a sense going for us by now at this point in evolution that that, you know, that, if, that sort of fundamentally rethinking that is, is something that doesn't uh, end up being competitively sensible. Um, there's a question here. Why haven't animals evolved with the same size as dinosaurs? Uh, for example, Brontosaurus was a, was a massive creature. There's a lot that's been studied about the, um, the value of being big versus not being big. One of the things that happens if you're big certain things scale in certain ways. Like for example, if you're going to be a certain weight and a certain, a, a certain height and so on, your bones better be a certain thickness in order to support that weight. Another thing would be, if you're gonna be really big, does that mean you need a bigger brain? 
or does that mean, well, actually you can get by with a small brain or maybe some extra sort of brainlet ganglia, you know, at other parts of the body and so on. Or if you're, you know, if you're really big, maybe it takes a really long time for the nerve impulse to go from your, from your brain where you see that predator coming to the time when you flip your tail around to, uh, to do this or that thing, because you're so long that just that nerve impulse takes a long time to, to get through you, so to speak. But so there are different things that happen as you sort of scale an animal up or down. There's a whole field of so-called allometry that is this whole question of when you, when you rescale animals and things, how do you have to rescale different parts of the animal? How do different, different pieces rescale? How do they, how do they rescale as, as the animal grows, which part of the animal grows first and so on? Um, the uh, um, and what uh, you know? How, how does that? How does that? Um, uh, you know, if you're going to be a tree of a certain height, how thick should your trunk be in order to support that tree? All those kinds of things. So there's a lot of kind of scaling of that type. It also tends to be the case that there are many fewer of bigger animals in a given ecosystem, uh, given a certain amount of food. If there are if everything was, a, if there were gazillions of big animals, they eat up all this food very quickly. Whereas if there are lots of small animals, they tend to eat it less, they'll, they'll, they'll be able to be many more small animals than there will be big ones. So it tends to be the case that there are, of any given species, like for example, the total number of, I don't know, cockroaches in the world is much, much larger than the total number of, uh, I don't know, um, uh, you know, deer or something. Some, some big animal. Um, and that, that's a very typical thing that's seen throughout the fossil record. The number of, of big animals is much smaller than, the, the, number, the number of individuals in the species of big animals is smaller than the number of individuals in a species of small animals. Also a different effect, the number of species of small animals tends to be larger than the number of species of big animals. There are, many, there are not that many mammals that exist, whereas there are gazillions, there are millions of, of beetle species that exist. Um, and I'm not sure how well understood that phenomenon is of why there are more species, why there are more individuals of a given species when the, when the individuals are smaller, that's reasonably well understood in terms of, well, you've got a fixed food supply, how many organisms can you support and so on. But I think, uh, and, and the question of why there's sort of nothing that's evolved. I mean, I think, you know, blue whales do, um, you know, they're competitive with dinosaurs. They're not, they're not as impressive as dinosaurs, but they're sort of competitive. Why is there not a mega, mega whale that is, you know, vastly larger and the, and the size of, you know, three city blocks or something? Um, most likely part of the reason is there are pure mechanical things like bone has a certain strength and you've got to invent a new kind of bone if you're going to have the, the animal be a lot bigger than that, because otherwise you can't support, you know, you can't keep the animal rigid with, with bone of the type of, of thing that bone already is. So I think those are those would be my, some guesses in terms of, of why, um, you know, an interesting question. If you look at the fossil record, there are times when the total number of species seems to be larger, smaller, et cetera. There have been a bunch of extinction events, hand, uh, half a dozen or so big extinction events in the history of life on Earth, like the one at the end of the, the, the 65 million years ago, at the end of the Cretaceous period, produced by this asteroid impact, the KT boundary, um, that uh, uh, was probably the sort of the end of the dinosaurs. Um, 
there've been you know a bunch of those extinction events, and they will uh, they will get rid of you know sixty percent of all species that exist at a given time or something. Um, but if you just look at the total number of species that existed through time, it's kind of gone up and down. And I don't think that there's anything notably different, for example, between dinosaur times and our times. So I don't think there's an explanation about, oh, there are many more species and that's why there aren't such big ones or something like that. I think it may be, uh, uh, it may just be the, the coincidence of the way that the sort of the tower of evolution has, has gone. So I don't, I'm not sure I have a, a, um, uh, a great answer to that. Okay, maybe one or two more questions and then I have to run off here. Uh, Moist is asking, um, oh well, this is more a, a life and times question, saying there are only 12, but the question is how do you deal with detractors? Um, and how do you deal with, uh, uh, what do you do when people say negative things and are critical about what you're doing? You know, I think for me in particular, the basic thing is I do the things I do because I like doing it. I like doing those things. And that's the thing I care most about. And I care about, am I doing the things I want to do? And am I satisfied for myself with the things that I'm doing? There's a whole separate question, which is, do other people give me positive feedback about the things I'm doing? Or do they say, oh, I think the things you're doing are totally crazy? Or you know, what you're doing is absolutely terrible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that um, I have tended, and maybe it's, it's a, um, uh, uh, I've tended to be very much focused on, am I satisfied with what I'm doing? I have a certain sort of code of what I think represents a good, a right, a useful project, and that's what I care the most about. What I've noticed is, when there's a project that I do that is something that is really going to perhaps move the world forward in, any, in some significant way, it's pretty much guaranteed that people will say, a lot of people will say, that's a crazy project. That couldn't possibly work. You know, you shouldn't do that project. It'll have all kinds of consequences, blah, blah, blah. And this is just the way the world is set up because most of the time, the world is a fairly predictable place where sort of people are doing what they had planned to do and sort of everything is moving forward in a, in a, in a sort of very fairly uniform way. And that's a good thing. If it wasn't for that, uh, you know, we'd be spending all of our time and, and at different times in history and different places in the world, this is what happens, is you're spending all of your time worrying about, oh my gosh, what could happen tomorrow? It could just turn my life upside down. The fact that that isn't what's happening most of the time in the, in the Western world these days, most of the time, is... is as far as I'm concerned, for my particular uh, kinds of things that I like to do is a good thing. You can just sort of assume that everything's going to just keep going in, in, in the same way it has been going. And that means that for people where if you say, I'm going to come and I'm going to do something incredibly new and different, many people are going to say, eh, you know what, we're happy with the way things are going. Just don't do that. That's, that's irrelevant. It's something we don't want. And so if you think, well, actually, on the other side of the hill, if we go to all this work, on the other side of the hill, we're gonna to get to something better. Well, if you think that and you're, you know, then, then it's something, then the way that you actually do that is to be interested in doing it for yourself. 
because other people are going to tell you, don't try and climb that hill. It's not going to work. It's a bad idea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a, um, uh, you know, I think that the, the important thing as far as I'm concerned is to be mostly have your own sort of value system about what you think is worth doing and what you like to do and so on and just just do it. Now, you know, the world gives useful feedback sometimes of uh, about things you're doing, but you have to kind of pay attention to it in a very filtered way. I mean, like, uh, for example, I don't know, the, these, uh, these live streams that I'm doing, you know, I started off doing them a year and a half ago. People seem to like them. I kept doing them. I had fun doing them. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. I'm going to do it. If people, if it was the case that, uh, you know, nobody seemed to care at all, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't really want to do this, then I would have stopped doing them. But it's something where there's a, you know, have I read reviews of these live streams? I don't even know if there are any. Um, no, I never have. Um, and, uh, and actually, I, I'm not sure I would, you know, I don't know what I would take from that. Maybe if there was some particular suggestion, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, about, about it, I might uh, find that useful. But otherwise, it's like, oh, this is a bad idea because whatever. It's like, well, I probably, I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't make much difference. So I think the, um, uh, sometimes I think if there are people criticizing what you're doing, it's actually a good sign because it's a sign that you're doing something that isn't just same old, same old, what people expect to be done. I mean, sometimes there are other effects, like, you know, if you are successful at what you're doing, people will say, oh my gosh, you know, there has to be something wrong, that person is being successful. Actually, it, it's, it's, it tends to go in two different groups. There are like, hey, it's cool to see something that's successful. You know, I, I like that, let me, let me see more of that because it's fun to, to kind of watch something that's successful. That's, that's one point of view. The other point of view is, oh my gosh, you know, I should have been doing that instead of this person. You know, I'm really, I really should be there, not them type thing. And, uh, or, or just, oh, if they're successful, there must be something terrible about what's going on. Um, I think uh, sometimes, sometimes people can hold, uh, well, it, it's, it's um, uh, so it, it kind of goes both ways. And I think that um, from my point of view, insofar as I've done lots of successful projects, um, I find it really nice that, um, We've been able to involve a bunch of people, particularly in more recent times, as we've been doing all kinds of live streaming and things like that, involve people in kind of seeing the process of doing these projects, because I think it's a, it's a very uplifting thing to see successful projects. On the other hand, you can take the point of view, oh, you know, it, it's like uh, people might say, you know, uh, you know, well, I was kind of vaguely thinking about doing that too, you know, and, and how come this person got to do it and I didn't get to do it? Well, you know, maybe, I mean, there are plenty of things where I've thought of doing something, but I haven't actually done it. And somebody else will do it or some other company will do it or something like this. And I'm like, oh, I could have done that. They did it. It's like, that's the way it works. You know, in, in, um, one can't do everything. And the, the only question is whether the things one picks to do oneself are the things that are the best things for one to pick to do oneself or whether one is picking, oh, I'm doing the, the grunt stuff that's really horrible. I don't really like doing it. And those other guys over there, they're getting all the fun. 
if if that's the situation, then you're probably picking the wrong things to do. But uh, anyway, that that's um, uh, that would be my now in, in terms of the you know the the more of the kid level of this, I would say that um, uh, the dynamics. Unfortunately, it's a long time since I was twelve years old, but um, trying to uh, and and of course for me, it's kind of interesting to see because all the kids I you know the kids I knew when I was twelve years old, they're now. You know, they've had all, you know, they've had careers or whatever else happened to them. And so you kind of know the end of the story. And those kids who are like, I'm going to do great things, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. Sometimes you can kind of see that pattern and you can say, well, I knew why that was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I, because I've been interested in people kind of my whole life, I, I certainly... Uh, both explicitly and implicitly, made all kinds of predictions. Talk about the scientific method, so to speak. I made all kinds of predictions about what was going to happen to the people I knew when I was actually specifically 12 years old. And, you know, some of them were right, some of them were wrong. The ones that were uh, both right and wrong have been sort of interesting to see why did I make that mistake? Uh, what was the thing that I correctly saw that turned out to be something that, uh, that eventually sort of uh, became a, a big success or a big problem, et cetera. Um, but I think uh, in terms of, um, um, you know, the most important thing somehow, at least in my way of doing things, is to have a, a sense of what it is that you actually like, what it is that you like doing, what it is that you like having achieved and so on. And in the end, sometimes, I mean, sometimes what people like achieving is external measures of achievement. Like, did you win that competition? Did you get that uh, you know, scholarship? Did you do whatever? Sometimes the thing that people like is that external sense of achievement. I haven't ever been that interested in that uh, for whatever reason of egotism or otherwise. I've been more interested in you know, uh, this thing that I've done, this project that I've done, am I satisfied with it? Uh, rather than is the world giving me positive feedback about it? And I, I think it's also uh, the question of, of um, uh, you know, I think the dynamics with, um, with everybody is, is kind of like, oh, uh, there are people who will like you, there are people who won't like you, there are people where uh, somehow, you know, in, in, um, uh, there's, you know, it's, it's uh, probably more pleasant to hang out with the people who like you, usually. On the other hand, for me, when there are people who've like, I think what you've done is totally crazy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, it's pretty interesting for me to talk to those people. Now, sometimes those people are just, just far off the deep end. But sometimes it's like, you know, I think this thing you're doing is, doesn't make sense because blah, 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 blah. And you can have a discussion with them. And sometimes you say, oh, that's actually interesting. That's a good point. You know, I hadn't thought of that. That's uh, a reasonable objection. You know, maybe I get around it in this way. Maybe I get around it that way. Maybe you're right that this is a bad idea. Um, and sometimes if the person you're talking to is reasonable and is prepared to have the, the discussion, it's like, um, uh, you know, oh, okay, now I understand. That makes sense. Or, you know, this thing that I thought was the most terrible thing, now that I understand it, it's like, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense. Um, now, you know, you also get into situations where people, uh, and, and hopefully not by age 12, although I have no idea in modern times, um, the, uh, where people are just so sure about something that anything you say is never going to change their mind. They're so sure about this 
piece of, I don't know, you know, I don't know, politics, religion, this, that, the other, um, you know, they're, they're just absolutely certain, or, or science for that matter, they're absolutely certain this is the way it works. And you say, well, is there really evidence for that? Oh, you know, like, like for example, it's usually a, a giveaway when somebody says, and I, and I even noticed this for, my, for myself, I have to admit this, that when I'm trying to make an argument for something and I start saying, oh, I've been working on this for, for 30 years and so I know what I'm talking about. That's a, a dead giveaway that I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a dead giveaway that I can't really explain. I'm just having to appeal to, I'm sure I do know the explanation, but I can't come up with it right now. And you know, I've been thinking about this for such a long time, I must be able to explain it. But well, actually I can't, and, and that's a bad sign. So I think that that um, uh, that that tends to be, you know, when when people, uh, you know, there are people who will be very closed to uh, talking about something, and and usually, if you really kind of pick away at it, it's like they don't really know why they think this, that, or the other thing, but they just they've thought it for so long, and maybe they they think I've thought this for so long, I must have had a good reason for thinking that. And for example, recently I've been working on foundations of mathematics and trying to understand some things about that. And I'm pretty sure that some things that I believe for a long time about that aren't really right. Um, and uh, that's a, in a sense, one has to have a certain degree of personal confidence to get to the point where you can say, well, I have believed this for a long time, but the evidence is now coming in that it isn't true. And so I'm actually gonna change my mind. I, th I think it's one of the things when one, uh, you know, I kind of, um, uh, aspire to in a sense is even if I'm really quite certain about something, if somebody brings me real evidence that I'm wrong, that I can actually change my mind. And, and certainly I've seen in, in, for example, business leaders, intellectual leaders, that's an attribute that I've, that I've uh, often seen among the most successful such people is the ability to change their mind when confronted with actually good evidence. I mean, not just to sort of flap in the wind when every new thing comes in, they just change what they're saying. But you know, even if they've really believed for a long time, this is the way it is, some new evidence comes in that they can actually change their mind. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's, a, um, uh, that's something I, I, would, I would hope that, I mean, I, I, I do interact with some, some uh, folks in the 12 year old ish set. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting the extent to which even at that age, it seems that people in modern times, and maybe it's always been this way, are very, very certain about certain kinds of things. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like, like um, you know, at times people might have said, I read it in a book, so it must be true. I saw it on TV, so it must be true. Uh, you know, I was told it by a teacher, so it must be true. I was, um, you know, this person who I think is cool said it, so it must be true type thing. Uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in, in um, uh, somehow the thing to, to learn in a sense is how to determine for yourself whether the thing is true and how to get confidence about whether it's true just because everybody says this or that thing doesn't necessarily mean it's true. It also doesn't necessarily mean it's false. I mean, there are things that I have that are sort of conventional wisdom um, that I mostly in past years have said, I don't believe in this conventional wisdom. You know, I'm gonna do something different. And sometimes I was wrong and the conventional wisdom was perfectly correct. And there was something I hadn't realized about the conventional wisdom 
and um, uh, that was just not part of the thought process that I'd gone through. And uh, then, you know, that's one of those change your mind type moments when you realize that. But often it's like, can you actually justify what you're doing for yourself as opposed to just saying, well, uh, you know, uh, can, can you give the argument sort of all the way down, so to speak, or, or not? Um, anyway, I, I don't think that necessarily, um, uh, it's, it's um, uh, I'm not sure that deals with the, 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 um, the detractors for the 12-year-old set, and I'm not sure that I'm necessarily um, too well equipped to address that beyond, I suppose, saying that, um, uh, you know, I think, one tends to be happy if the person one is most interested in uh, sort of convincing about what one's doing is oneself and not other people, because other people you don't have, uh, you have a lot more control about, about your, of yourself than you do of, of uh, what other people think or say or do or whatever. All right, that was a, that was a, a, a digression in a quite different direction. Um, all right, I think we should probably, uh, um, oh gosh, there's a lot. A lot of interesting questions. You guys always come up with interesting questions. Um, but I think we should probably wrap it up uh, for today here. Slightly uh, uh, unusual set of topics for the day, um, but uh, I, all interesting. And thank you for those questions. And um, uh, thanks for joining us. And um, hope to see you again next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.